We exist at a time in which war, civil strife, disasters, and climate change impact almost every corner of the globe, and crisis is, in many ways, an inevitability. Paired with this are the sensitive geopolitics that shape the way in which policymakers and governments prepare for and react to those crises. I'm Holly Summers, and in this five-part podcast series from the International Science Council, we will explore the implications for science and scientists of a world characterized by crises and geopolitical instability. In this episode, we'll discuss the impact of crisis, specifically conflict, on an individual scientist, Dr. Ala Hamdan from Mosul, Iraq. Recorded over a series of voice notes during power cuts in Iraq, we spoke to Allah about his experience before, during, and after ISIS's takeover of Mosul in June 2014. We discussed the impact of the crisis on his personal, academic, and professional life, as well as the important rebuilding of what Allah has labeled the Lighthouse of Knowledge, Mosul University's library. Allah is the director of the Remote Sensing Center at the University of Mosul in Iraq. He is an expert in disaster risk management, seismic activity, remote sensing, geographic information systems, earth sciences, urban planning, cultural heritage, and tectonics and geomorphology. In 2014, when ISIS took over the city of Mosul, he made the difficult decision to flee his city and country. His journey as a refugee found him in incredibly harsh conditions in Turkey, often sleeping in different places including open parks, and with little to no money. In 2015, he was granted a fellowship by the University of Aberdeen as a research fellow in earth sciences and remote sensing. In 2016, he left Scotland to Maynooth, Ireland, and in the same year, Allah decided to return to his family in Erbil, Iraq, where they had fled to. Amidst the chaos and the destruction of the city of Mosul that he returned to in 2017, Allah set about trying to restore Mosul University Library, setting up the Mosul Bookbridge campaign, a call to action to the international scientific community, requesting assistance for rebuilding and restocking the library. Dr. Allah, what research were you working on before ISIS took over your city of Mosul? And what started your passion in this field? Um, I have been working in remote sensing and GIS techniques, and uh, seismic activity analysis, and earth science. And uh, because I'm a geologist, and I finished my master and my PhD in earth science and remote sensing and GIS, so I had a big passion toward this field. And prior to the takeover of Mosul by ISIS, what was your experience carrying out research in your home country like? Were there any struggles that you were facing before ISIS seized control? My experience or my research work before ISIS taking over Mosul, it was um, quite okay, but was limited because we were afraid and uh, terrified and there were a big mysteries about our life. The city of Mosul, which means the linking point in Arabic, is home to an enormous amount of cultural diversity. But at the heart of Mosul's scientific and educational heritage is the Mosul University Library, built in 1967. Could you tell us a bit more about the scientific and cultural importance of this space and what it means to you personally? The library of Mosul University 
It is in the heart of uh, Mosul University. I called it a lighthouse, a lighthouse of knowledge and learning and information. It's mean a lot of for students, academics, and researchers. For me as well, because I had a nice memory there. I spent a lot of time inside that library, studying and trying to learn new things, reading different cultures, different books from Agatha Christie to fictional books and non-fictional books. I had a really nice memory there. Very briefly, Allah, what did the scientific community and the higher education system look like in Mosul before ISIS took the city in 2014? The scientific community status before 2014, it was quite difficult rather than now. The scientists, engineers, doctors, they were afraid from non-clear future and mysterious life and the situation was really bad here in Mosul, but the life was going on as usual. Dr. Allah, when ISIS recaptured Mosul in June 2014, you must have been left with an impossible decision to stay or to leave. Could you tell us a bit about the experience for you in the immediate aftermath and how you made your decision in the end? The decision of leaving. When ISIS took over my city, Mosul, People were scared and terrified. Me too. I didn't know what to do. I just wanted to leave the city as soon as possible. And I did. And it was a hard decision for me. And I left behind me everything. My books, my office, my papers, my articles, my memories, my room, everything. I felt at that moment I would never go back. I wanted to cry deeply. And I was so sad, with no plan where I should go, what I should do. What is my next step? Everything was dark for me. I just wanted to leave, to go to Erbil or Turkey, anywhere to feel safe. And what international help or organizations were available to you as a displaced scientist and professor? I received help from SAR, Scholar Atresk and CARA. Council of Atresk Academic. Both of them, they accept my my application and uh, accept me as a fellow. And uh, they helped me a lot, especially Kara. Kara, they found me a displacement in Aberdeen University in Scotland for one year and a half. And that's helped me a lot as a scientist and academic because it improved my career and my experience and my background, that's really helped me a lot. I was thinking without this displacement, I would end up in, in some refugee camp and I would be forgotten. And maybe my path, my life path would be changed totally. Yeah, so I thank them very much for their help, really. And a lot of friends also helped me in that as well. I really thank them, all of them. So you were able to find a fellowship in a host university, but I imagine that the sudden and drastic change of country during a time of crisis must have been a really challenging time for you. Could you paint a picture of what that was like? Moving to Aberdeen University, it was completely like U-turn for me. Different city, different university, different culture, different country, different scientific 
system. So I had to adjust myself to that system. I struggled a lot in the beginning, to be honest. But uh, later, with help, a lot of friends there, I adjusted myself and I found myself working good within that system. Aberdeen University helped me. They gave me this good hosting during the crisis time. They opened the door for me while all the doors were closed. Whilst you were away from Iraq, what was your academic experience like in your new host country? And were you able to continue your previous research? I tried to continue my previous research in Aberdeen University, in Geoscience School, and try to improve my research as well toward different paths. So I tried to match between the archaeology department and geography department and geology, because in the geoscience school in Aberdeen University, there were three departments, archaeology and geography and geology. So I tried to get a benefit from these three different departments to find new path for me. And what was it in the end which drew you back to Mosul and to leave your new position? Oh, the most hard decision in my whole life. It was really difficult for me to make that decision. How I should go back to my family in Erbil, to Iraq. Because my family left Mosul and they gone to Erbil. And they need my help. So I was in big confusing decision whether I should stay in UK or Ireland or I should go back to my family to the refugee camp and help them. It was big difference like telling someone oh do you want to stay in five-star hotel or do you want to stay in one-star motel. So I made my decision and I went back to Erbil to help my family because they need me. I couldn't let them down. I just sacrificed my, my desire to stay there and live a wonderful life. And I went back. And Allah, could you describe to us, if you can, what Mosul looked like when you returned after the long battle to reclaim the city from ISIS? First time I, I put my feet in Mosul after June 2014. First time was 25th. September 2017 and I went to my house and it was a tragic moment to see my house being burned and my furniture being stolen even my photo my personal photo being burned my books everything so it was a tragic moment to see all that the deliberate destruction and theft of cultural and scientific heritage by ISIS has occurred in Iraq, Syria, and in Libya since 2014. These cultural and scientific institutions, such as Mosul University Library, are often deliberately targeted due to their social and cultural importance, with the aim of destroying the population and their heritage. Dr. Allah, what was going through your mind when you returned to Mosul University Library? When I went to the university, I looked at the library. I stood in front of the library. I still remember that moment. The library was destroyed and burned. I could still smell the, the burning, the smell of the ashes and the books. Everything was black. Pieces of books here and there being burned. It was a really sad moment. 
to see the lighthouse of knowledge being destroyed and burned. The rebuilding of these critical and valuable institutions and buildings is a crucial but extremely difficult part of ensuring that science and the higher education sector can flourish again. Dr. Alla, you took it upon yourself to issue a call for solidarity, support and assistance from universities, public libraries, organizations and institutions, publishing houses and the media in order to rebuild Mosul University's library collection and the library itself. Could you tell us more about the initiative that you created once you had returned to Mosul? After that moment, when I went to the library, I gave a promise to myself that I would do my best to help that library back again. And I started my initiative, my campaign, Mosul Book Bridge, in 2017. And I sent my call to all my friends and asked them to help me, help our library, help our university. I sent that call to everyone and a lot of respond, including Book 8 International and the Young Academy of Scotland and Daryl Hickman and Embassy of Canada and British Council and a lot of friends from different universities, different institutions, from different countries. They wanted to help and they did. They helped us a lot and I really appreciate their help. I would never forget that. And after... One year, first shipment of books arrived to the library. Thousands, thousands of books. Which international allies and collaborations have helped you in regard to aiding the scientific and higher education community after such destruction? And what kind of support did they offer you? Most universities received a lot of support from different countries. And the major supporter were UNTP. Even they rebuilt the library. And also different university, international university, local university, and different organizations, they helped most universities. And they wanted most universities to stand up again on their feet. And thankfully that most universities stood up again and back better than before. What is still needed now for the Mosul University Library? And what can be done from both within Iraq and internationally to best support those needs? The library been reopened again last February and I have been so happy for that and yes it has been rebuilt again and been opened again but still need a lot of support we need a lot of books a lot of publication electronic access a lot of equipment special equipment regarding to the special collections a lot of training for the librarian so the library of most universities still need a lot of support. And I hope that who can hear this interview, I would ask kindly any support from them toward our library. Any support would be appreciated much. And Dr. Allah, when the library reopened in, in spring 2022, it must have felt like a monumental moment. Why do you think buildings and institutions such as Mosul University Library are so central in helping cities and citizens start to regain hope and to rebuild their lives after catastrophe? What do they represent? The Library of Mosul University, I think, will be icon for rebuilding, a new hope for any destroyed country, any destroyed university, any destroyed library. It will be a hope for a future. It will be a message for not giving up. And a lot of people will support you. You are not alone. Trust me.
One moment when I stood up in front of the library once being burned and destroyed, I thought the library will never back again. I thought it would be forgotten within the time. But no, it's back and it's open again. And embracing students and academic and researcher as before. So any destroyed library, it will be reopened again. And I'm sure a lot of people will help you. And I would be happy to help you. We will support you wherever you are. After hearing Allah's story, we wanted to discuss the role of not only the ISC, but also the broader scientific community in supporting and advocating for at-risk, displaced, and refugee scientists in times of crisis. Vivi Stavrou is the Executive Secretary of the Committee for Freedom and Responsibility in Science, CFRS. She is a clinical psychologist and development worker with extensive international experience in humanitarian emergencies and post-conflict situations. She has worked with the UN development agencies, government ministries, and academic institutions across areas such as child protection, mental health, and psychosocial support, as well as in human rights and security sector reform. The Committee for Freedom and Responsibility in Science, CFRS, is the guardian of the ISC's principle of freedom and responsibility in science. And this principle sets out the basic freedoms that all humans should have, Now, science belongs to everybody. It's a fundamental part of human culture. This is what we do as humans as we question and try and make sense of ourselves, our families, our societies, nature, and the world around us. And then we develop and debate these ideas and theories of why things are, how the world works. We develop technologies, medicines, write books, and make art to help us create records of a specific time, and place and person, to make informed decisions, to solve practical problems, express and communicate ideas, and make our surroundings more beautiful. We develop great educational institutions, scientific laboratories, libraries, art galleries to educate and show and store these great achievements. And as such, researchers, writers, scientists, have played vitally important roles in human history and are key members of contemporary society. This is why in times of conflict and war, these people who question how things work, who question power, whose work is key for economic and national development, quite frankly, become targets. Now, in times of crisis, whether this is because of a human-induced natural disaster like a fire, catastrophic flooding, pandemic, or ongoing conflict and even war, this very integrity and existence of science systems and infrastructure is threatened. Such catastrophes destroy physical infrastructure and can displace untold numbers of people from their homes and countries. The fracture and the loss of a country's science systems deals a damaging blow not only to domestic scientific investment, teaching and research, and to long-term growth and sovereignty, but also to the global network of scientists and research infrastructures. The science sector has an important and underdeveloped role to mobilize the scientific community to play an active role in humanitarian response, 
not only to protect scholars and researchers, but also their findings, knowledge, contributions to science, and also these grand institutions and repositories of science. So what do we do? I'll talk about um, the International Science Council's work in this respect. We are currently working with partners across the organized scientific community, the NGOs, the UN, and the private sector, importantly, science publishers and the science data platforms, to develop a policy framework for supporting science in times of crisis, to formalize um, the support work that we are doing at the moment, to develop a more effective, joined-up and long-term approach to the protection of scientific communities and to the rebuilding of science systems, to ensure two things, that the world is still able to benefit from scientific discovery, even when conflict and disaster strikes, and also to have a long-term and resourced approach on how to protect these very scientific communities, to preserve and rebuild scientific knowledge, systems, and infrastructure in times of disaster and conflict, and the long process of rebuilding um, post-disaster and conflict. All that I have been saying, I think, was captured very poignantly by Dr. Allah when he said that um, when he got to Europe, the support that he got from the NGO sector and from the universities is that they opened the door for me while all the doors were closed. And really, this is at the heart of what we want to do. The onus is on the scientific community to look at our own community to direct our attention about how we can protect and support our own community in times of crisis, both by protecting the individual scientists, but also by directing, working with our governments, working with the UN, working with the private sector, to direct very significant resources to the rebuilding of science systems and scientific infrastructure post-disaster, post-conflict. We're not only doing this for what may be perceived as the more narrow benefit of um, university education, of academics and scientists, but really we're doing this for the benefit of, of our whole history, our cultural history, our scientific history, which means so much about who we are as humans and it means so much about how we will develop, what ideas, what technologies we need to develop for the well-being, um, for human and environmental well-being in the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science in Times of Crisis. In the next and final episode of our series, we turn to the future to explore the growing role of so-called Track 2 organizations such as the International Science Council, with ISC President Sir Peter Gluckman and former Director General of UNESCO, Irina Bokova. 
we'll discuss the importance of these informal channels in maintaining and growing international scientific collaborations and ask whether ensuring a strong global core of scientific cooperation can help achieve the goals that traditional diplomacy is falling behind on. The opinions, conclusions and recommendations in this podcast are those of the guests themselves and not necessarily those of the International Science Council.